friends, country women, country men, country they, country who, country you. Hey, you welcome to Hit Different. It's uh, it's a vibe because it feels like the end is in sight, not just death, but also the lockdowns. So uh, in, wherever you are in Australia or the, indeed the world, we hope you're doing well. I hope you keep you connected to people, to family, to friends. I'm connecting today to Liam Parsons from Good Morning. Good afternoon, uh, Mr. Good Morning. Hello. How are you going? Groovy. Uh, and Marcus T. <laughs> Marcus is frozen on us. <laughs> Excellent. This is Hit Different, your weekly music culture podcast. Coming up on this episode, we're going to discuss the Dennis Hanlon expose on Four Corners instead of chew, the, chew it a little bit more, chew the fat as it were, a little bit more. And then we'll be speaking in depth with Liam Parsons from Good Morning, the best band you maybe haven't heard of yet in Australia, straight up. Incredible six record or six big release, Barnyard, coming out through Polyvinyl and their own label. Which What's your label called, Liam? Uh, it's called Good Morning Music Company Worldwide. Straight up. Hey, we're talking to you in depth about this, but just quick check in and how are you coping with lockdown and uh, just life? Doing okay, doing okay. The end, uh, like you said, the end is near. <laughs> trying to trying to pass whether that's a a good thing feels feels scary. Yeah, no, I'm doing all right, holding holding it together. Good man, this is pleasing, and I think uh, I should just state the obvious. This is three way therapy as well. So everyone listening to podcasts, maybe it's sort of four way therapy for you. We hope. Everyone's been talking about it. it. Happened one week ago today. The Dennis Hamlet expose on Four Corners. It was savage. It was uh, it was an enjoyable enjoyable to watch to see a guy you know and, and sort of people like him get their just desserts. It was also very difficult to watch people like the chauffeur driver seeing you know his PTSD and he shakes mm. and you know the whole thing was was just was just yuck. So we'll be sort of talking about that today because we talked about it with Sois, but Marcus, we haven't had you sort of weigh in on it. You know, one of the first things you say is a, a bullying boss in the 80s, big deal. Hang on, no. And I thought well, one thing that stuck out to me was when Dennis Hanlon was sort of stood down for three months um, because of some certain things that went on, and then he was reinstated, that he came back with sort of more kind of power and ego and megalomania. Did you watch it, Lee? Did you watch, did you watch Four Corners the other night? Yeah, I watched it. I've also been listening to that uh, Everyone Knows podcast, the... 7am one. Yeah, 7am. Really well done. Pretty rough stuff. Marcus, what's your first reaction when you were watching it the other night? Because I know you've got some pretty interesting thoughts on this. <laughs> That's very generous, Mikey. It was interesting just seeing the people on camera, how obviously shell-shocked everyone still was. of uh, Even just kind of like revisiting some of this stuff. It's one thing to kind of read about articles about this sort of thing, but then to see people's lived experiences and the kind of trauma they're revisiting by talking about it is pretty visceral on screen i mean it raised as i thought it raised as many questions as it kind of answered like it almost felt to me like the the beginning of like a nine-part series or something about everything that went on and a lot of moody shots of the sony building <laughs> outside <laughs> De definitely got a lot of airtime. for example you know the hr guy was there for 14 years sort of thing like that's probably a big episode mm. in itself like when you're in hr your job is to either cause change by what your employees are telling you or to effect change on your own by seeing what's going on around you. And it's it's sort of telling that, less telling and more confusing in some ways that 
he was obviously really shaken up about it and felt like he was powerless, but also he was there for 14 years and it's, you know, which is, it feels a mystery in itself. Like, do you not get out? Do you not wave the flag? Do you not kind of like push for change? Or was it, was it this sort of almost Stockholm syndrome mentality where people are so kind of shocked and on the back foot about it that they kind of retreat into their own little corner of the business and hope that everything goes away which is i guess again remarkable i think for the hr guy to feel uh so slighted by it over 14 years when do something about it dude yeah and then obviously the chauffeur who got the phone in the head and was it's chowder it's chowder okay (laughs) to say it who uh was obviously still really rattled that was kind of heartbreaking i think a point you made to marcus is the episode actually what it did lack though was a big name an artist talking about it that the public can recognize and we're sort of still working out and uh asking why the owner should be on these artists who are at the bottom of the food chain uh in so many ways in in the music industry for them to be the ones to have to sort of say something i wouldn't say it's been a case of silence is deafening but all these artists, none of them have, have, have sort of spoken up against Dennis Hanlon because in many ways he helped make their career. So as an, as an artist, Liam, would you, you would have had some sort of interesting sort of introspective thoughts of what you, you would do in that sort of similar situation. What was your gut telling you? Well, I think that like obviously it was fairly – I personally have obviously never had any – well, not obviously, but I've never had any dealings with Sony. But a lot of that stuff wasn't news to me as just being like a sort of cursory low-level music industry <laughs> person myself. I think that like a lot of artists would be, like you said, in a weird position where they sort of did have their careers made by this guy. And it must be a pretty weird position to be in now where you're sort of like kind of complicit in a way. It's I don't know. I don't think there's really any clear-cut sort of way through. On one hand, I... I get it. The story was almost a story about office culture, really, and showing up to work, you know, the the kind of like like it's it's kind of like an episode of the office gone into like the hellhole hell mouth or something. <laughs> the hell mouth. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and so I get that it was focused on almost almost like office culture in that way because it was about like a work environment which artists are obviously a bit less a part of like they would come in for a day to do some media and you know get their platinum record or whatever and then take off again so in some ways I get why they weren't the focus of the story but at the same time I think for something like a Four Corners episode that's then all that remains for a lot of the people watching like it needs a kind of musician to to set to you know to apart from Jaguar Jones who was um, on the episode but a Sony musician to you know come out and go oh yeah like we had a lot of great nights out but then I started seeing this all you know mm. around the fringes and I always had to thank him at the Arias and all this kind of weird stuff and mm. like that I think would be the stuff that gets delivered into people's homes and lives and they understand the the kind of consequences or the far-reaching consequences of that and. Yeah, so I think in terms of storytelling, it lacked that a little bit. But you know, I, I heard, I read somewhere that they interviewed 117 people for it or something, and there was probably a lot of people that didn't go on the record, wouldn't go on the record, didn't feel comfortable about it, didn't know enough. Perhaps I'm not sure. And there's a lot of chat too about at the moment about having people who have gone through trauma, lived trauma, having to 
relive that through art and through the books and and my friend Jen, Jenny Jenny Valentier, she, she wrote um, sort of a, a, a memoir, Women, Woman of Substances. You know, she said every time she had to go and speak uh, on radio or at book conferences and everything, it really, after a while, she just felt wrung out, completely empty and just this sort of husk of a, of a human because they had to sort of go into these experiences again. And, and the nature of writers, too, we want to say it in a different way. We don't want to say it the same way all, every time. <laughs> same with musos, you know. It's it's the feeling of, um, of wanting to be original and sort of present something. But, you know, you, that really, really takes a toll. Um, you were saying something too, Marcus, uh, about what Jaguar Johns did by including um, Dennis Hanlon's uh, vocals, a, a sample in her song, Who Died a Major King. Yeah, we were talking about this just before the episode about that song because um, I know you talked about it last week with Soz on the podcast. We, You and I talked about it briefly about its uh, success as a as a track, as a, as a banger, basically. Um, and then that led into the conversation where I thought it was really interesting with that track in that I always think it's really exciting when an artist is able to put their lived experience so explicitly in a song, like whatever it's about sort of thing. And so I thought that that track was really successful because she's not only kind of, I guess, embracing that lived experience that that we've all witnessed over the past six months or a year or whatever and putting it in a track, but kind of reclaiming the narrative and reclaiming her voice in that story and part of that by literally ripping Dennis's voice, <laughs> stripping him of his power, uh, and put it, yeah, and putting it into the song and recontextualizing it for her benefit in a in a way, which is a mm-hmm. real power move. Completely, I thought. And we also sort of went beyond uh, about talking about it as is it a banger? Isn't it a banger? It's that's not the point. It's just like <laughs> it's something that that's come out, and the way it's landed and the way people are sort of you know responding to it, it's it's forever going to be something at a crucial time in Australian sort of music industry history that, that came out and um, had an impact. You have a song, Liam, called Matthew Newton on the new record, Barnyard. And I believe it was it, and God, if I get this wrong, then slap me in the face. If it, I think it was you, not Stefan, that said it was the first sort of person you were going back in your mind in pop culture that was quote unquote cancelled. And Matthew Newton was the person that, that came to mind. So tell us about why you wrote that song. And I guess, in those, do you rip someone to shreds? Do you present it as a sort of a vignette slash subconscious thought that's just sort of careening through your, your mind and out it comes through a song? What uh, what was the process there? Generally speaking, uh, it is more of a vignette kind of thing. That sort of just a thought. Most of our songs are kind of more about just like moments in our thoughts mm. or whatever. I guess I'd pre- like preface this by saying I don't really think that like quote unquote cancel culture really is a real thing to be honest cancel culture kind of gets used as this sort of way for people to kind of uh frame things as though they're being attacked for doing nothing wrong and for kind of finally having consequences for their actions so i don't really think that like what what's been happening with sony or whatever has really anything to do with cancel culture it's more kind of uh consequence matthew newton definitely yeah it's not like a tragic figure it's not someone i'm ripping to shreds it's not i don't really have any opinion on matthew newton really it doesn't seem like a particularly good guy but like i don't know i can't imagine he's particularly <laughs> particularly good guy knowing some of the things you know about him but it is just like thinking about the idea that like consequence is nothing new and i think we're just kind of seeing a sort of delayed catch-up now of consequences mm. really that song yeah really was just kind of thinking about just sort of 
the earliest thing that I could think mm. of really in, you know, Australian pop cultural mm. memory as a one of my 28-year-old, mm. you know, so... And that was sort of the first thing it's I could It's funny, think the, of. the term cancel culture, I was only a few years old, it had so much baggage already. <laughs> There's not many terms, which is yeah, just, like, just like heaving. Like, would you like to check those on, sir? You also made some points in the interview I did with, with you uh, for Enemy, which is coming out in a few days, uh, about nepotism uh, in, in the Australian industry, media industry. Nothing new. I mean, I think you look at, it's not even a particularly Australian thing. It's uh, or necessarily particularly like arts and music industry type problem there's a lot of nepotism in the world and uh, especially i guess that's the sort of how people hold on to like generational wealth and generational power by building these sort of lineages and the newtons are just a, a microcosm of that you know <laughs> like that song cracks me up it's an incredible <laughs> track i love the matthew newton moved to london because when you're older you check out england <laughs> <laughs> Something about that also that speaks to that, you know, Aussie experience of just like people, oh, I better yeah. go see the world. And then they go to, it's, you, you know, go it's to Yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we were talking to our label in America and they were like, oh, maybe that one could be a single. We're like, oh, I don't know. I think <laughs> Keep that as a deep cut, maybe. And sort of further segue too, Liam, you got songs uh, Wellberg and Young Sheldon on the new record, Barnyard. Incredible record, as I said. God damn. It's eligible for the AMP, the $30,000 Australian Music Prize. Watch this space, friends. How do you tackle these subjects? I just, I'm just going to plug everything. <laughs> just Peter, plug a lot. <laughs> How do you tackle these subjects and make them something sort of weightier beyond mere parody? I mean, I think uh, I think we were probably talking about it in the interview that Wahlberg could be any... It's, it's, it's not about yes. the Wahlbergs. It's about like family mm-hmm. in general, I guess. Once again, I feel like it goes back to like, Matthew Newton or whatever, and just these things being a sort of moment in time that I was thinking about one thing. They were just the family I was thinking about, mm-hmm. the Wilbergs. And young Sheldon, uh, I don't think that actually means anything. Like, that was just the name <laughs> for my demo. Like, I was trying to make, a, like, a sort of Justin Vernon-style, uh, like, you know, song name where it's, like, heaps of characters <laughs> and, like, you know, X's and, like, weird ca- yeah, mm. numbers. And um thought it would be funny to write young mm. Sheldon. But... It just kind of stayed yeah. on the record. So. <laughs> Catchy title. Obviously, I'm interested in pop culture. I think most like musicians and people in the arts industry are. So I think a lot of kind of what my worldview is, for better or worse, filtered through a sort of pop cultural lens a lot of the time. And it's how I've sort of explore other topics that are interesting to me through the lens of Mark and Donnie. <laughs> Very good. Coming up in just a moment, friends, we have more of Hit Different. Find Hit Different on Facebook and hunt down myself, Marky Marcus, or um, Mr. Good Morning himself, Liam Parsons. I believe you run the Twitter account and you just haven't changed it and you just, you like a spicy tweet. Yeah, I'm trying to be better. I quit drinking, so it's definitely less spicy now. There's less sort of like 3 a.m. me, like 12 beers deep, yelling at things, so... It's a bit, it's a bit, it's a bit more tamed now. Yeah. Did you quit drinking to get better at Twitter? <laughs> no, honestly, I think that's probably one of the sort of negative side effects of sobriety is that you're, although like, you know, Riley Walker and Perfume Genius, they're both uh, sober and, you know, they have amazing Twitter accounts. So Tweet maybe um, it's like a, a sort of shoddy carpenter blames his tools. You know? <laughs> Very cool. Well, Liam's here speaking with two tools. That's Marcus Teague and Mikey Carl. Coming up now.
Marcus to lead. Artists need champions. Talk to us, Marcus. So this week, the music.com.au, the National Street Press title was sold to the Brisbane-based SGC Media, um, i.e. Stephen Green. Stephen Green heads that up. SGC also owns Purple Sneakers and the country music website Country Town, which cracks me up some, going down to Country Town. That's all I think of when I see that <laughs> website. The music in its previous incarnation was around for a while. It was created in 2013. From the amalgamation of Sydney's Drum Media, Melbourne's Impress, Brisbane's Time Off and Perth's Drum Perth. While the music will still exist, the changing of the guards behind the scenes is notable. Run by brothers Lee and Craig Truick, who founded Impress 23 years ago, the music also... That's good cop and bad cop for those playing at home. <laughs> <laughs> the music also featured editor Andrew Mars, who was a much respected and well-liked music editor who built a stable of writers around him. The sale in itself is news, but it also sparked a, a convo online about the the general absence of reliable music publications at the moment, particularly ones that can foster music writers and allow them to develop and either by mentorship or, or just have free range to go a little mm. crazy. I know when I started writing, the attraction to it was being able to go rogue, mm. basically, and um, make mistakes, and, but also have ownership of your own voice, which which felt really... Essential, basically, when you're figuring out what the hell you're trying to talk about. I mean, especially at a that age when you are finding your voice, whether through writing or I guess through expression and or through music or whatever it is that you do. So tied into this conversation or this announcement online during the week, then came a discussion from a few music writers about how when a music publication shifts hands or ceases, it inevitably sheds a lot of the voices of support for some artists. For a lot of artists, that line of support, you know, can sometimes, especially from a, a few champions, and maybe Liam, you've had this, where some of those early champions of what you do can be super important for you. I don't know, making you feel good about yourself, obviously, but also starting to kind of like pull together a patchwork of people that can write about you and help you and like someone writing about you you know, on their blog in Philadelphia can lead to other opportunities and more doors and it helps you find your own voice in a, in a way or at least to hear how other people are reacting and that sort of thing. A few writers were, were talking about how gutted they were that that not only the music was kind of changing but that the people behind it was moving. The writer Cyclone Wenner tweeted, people, I'm gutted. Andrew Master's been endlessly supportive. I did some of my best writing for them as, as I felt like people had faith in me freedom to follow my most outlandish ideas and having my own voice, that stuff is rare. And then hip-hop impresario, Earth Boy. I always wanted to say impresario out loud. <laughs> That's good. That's um, a nice one. It always seems to be related to hip-hop as well. Like you rarely say like a like an indie rock Backstreet impresario. Boys, yeah, nah, yeah. no. Doesn't work, does it? He tweeted, <laughs> music culture is always poorer when the writers and media around the songs disappear. Salute to an incredible run supporting artists and businesses. Which sounds like a death knell. It's not a eulogy either. This It's going to continue. Yeah. It's true. It's true. It's true. I, I guess what he's saying is that, I don't know, after 20 years, like that network of people that you've built, kind of mm. pretty irreplaceable. Unless they're moving wholesale along with the, you know, to the to the next stop. Um. And then writer Kate Hennessy, great friend, great writer, she replied, 100% agree with the first part, but journalists, editors, publishers aren't or shouldn't be in the business of, quotation marks, supporting art artists. 
which made me think of um, famous music writer, critic, Everett True, who always had in his in his bio, I'm a music critic, the clue was in the title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it made me think about the, um, I guess, the writer's responsibility to support artists versus criticize them or not criticize them for the sake of criticizing, but interrogate or investigate what they're doing from a critical point of view. It's not something that we have all that much in this country anymore. I suppose that's how it ties into the music shifting is that it's yet another kind of loss for, I guess, critical thinking about what we do and long form reviews and mentorship and all those things that no one gets paid very much for, but is really crucial to buoying up or supporting the, yeah, the, the local music industry. Um, and I mean, lean with you guys kind of, being around for a while now especially kind of self-releasing and diy very much at the start i'm sure that you can kind of like pin down some some key moments to or key champions that are like yeah you should do this or i'm gonna let me film this song or come you know especially in the u.s i've noticed that it's it's kind of rare when you um look up an artist's interviews there's so much stuff of you guys of just random random dudes doing long form kind of q a's as you travel across the states you don't really see that much anymore and, and it, it feels it's it feels important that kind of way of writing and coverage i think yeah i think definitely the the sort of underground culture of music writing and music criticism will always be something that's around we started in 2014 and I think by then the kind of music writing landscape had already changed quite a lot. Like things are pretty clickbaity online. Like there wasn't, there already wasn't a lot of like straight up music writing. And sort of since then it's kind of only gotten worse. Like it's a lot of the big music websites or not even big music websites, but the sort of middle, middle music websites, they spend 80% of their time sort of rewriting press releases. Really. It's not writing or criticism. Um, which is a bummer. And I feel like that isn't the fault of the writers. Like, I think that comes from, from management and from a sort of more financial mindset. But I think the long run of that is that it's kind of killed all of these publications and melded them all into one sort of puddle of, you know, nothing is, it's not a lot that stands out, which is a real bummer. I think criticism is super important. Full disclosure, my boyfriend is a music critic. I, I sort of talk about a lot with him. I think it's probably going to come back again that people will start to think of criticism as more important. In the past few years, it seems like there's been a sort of like positive mindset about everything, whereas like it's deemed as like a bad thing to to sort of like critique music. Yeah, I guess that's what it is. Like there's so little around that it feels so fragile. Yeah. That it's kind of hard to actually go in and criticize people when everyone's having a rough time, especially over the past couple of years. You don't want mm. to kind of like sink anyone, but at the same time, it ends up being this monoculture of just like, yeah, everything's pretty good and whatever, yeah. and you, you do you. And This coming February onwards, it's fine to give a two-star review. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There's a line in the sand. <laughs> but I mean, that, that sort of like blog culture has always been really, me being my age, like I, that's how I discovered his music when I was growing up, the sort of golden age of MP3 blogs where... It was all based on music piracy. It was the best. Like, you could, you know, people were writing about shit they loved and it wasn't necessarily the criticism. It was like, 
like sharing and about like discovery, which I think the sort of the the algorithmic side of things has kind of taken place of that and made it less about sort of like a sort of personal voice and curation, which is a bummer because I think, you know, younger people growing up now kind of not really have that sort of sense of community where they can like go and find music that's sort of a bit more tailored to them. Like it's all... I mean, I'm sure I'm probably sounding like an old like, <laughs> person and there's like something I don't, there's a, probably, probably all sorts of shit I don't know about, you know, who knows, there's probably some like great music criticism TikTok account or something, you know, but like, I just think that that's, that's something that's going to be really sorely missed is a sort of sense of yeah. community and a sense of like discovery for you. To your point too, Liam, um, the romance of kept coming home and having a beat and an impress on a Wednesday night from the year, you know, from the mid nineties until God, 2018 you know, it sort of obviously fell away, uh, fell away a little bit. But having something tactile, it makes such a big difference when you can see something mm. in print and you see your band. And like I got, I got my start at Impress. I literally, del- I wrote the A to Z guide to the big day out in the year two thousand and delivered it to Impress. I called them up. I said, I've, I've got a del- delivery with my uh, mobile number written on twenty napkins. Uh, wrapped in twenty Mentos sticks and put it in a giant box and then put a giant rave poster on top of it and you know they're like call me out good news we're gonna run your piece they gave me a full page in impress and I was just like beyond fucking stoked went to JB Hi-Fi and Danny Nong the next day when I when it came out and we just jumped out of the car and grabbed the whole bundle of fifty of them jumped back in the car like a crazy heist <laughs> even though it was free it felt, felt freaking amazing and yeah because of that and because because CDs were tactile and cassettes and all this kind of thing there is more you know when you're literally handing someone something hey read this article hey he, here's this thing that you can borrow from me. It is a tighter sense of community. It's another reason to see a friend is so you can pick up that CD. With CDs, I would be like, okay, I've got the new Beck Midnight Vulture CD. I'm going to listen to it for a week and then I'm going to give it to you for three weeks. And then when you, when I get it back, I, I'm never going to get sick of it. Otherwise, if I just get it, I'm going to listen to it for three weeks and then I'm going to like, you know, I'm nearly done with it. So it's hard to, all that kind of stuff sort of plays into to what we're talking about. Like you say, that ecosystem is almost, is almost the thing that is lacking now. Like that's what you used to get, or you, I mean, you still do behind people who do those giant blog posts on their own blog or, or whatever, like they're obviously coming at it from a personal angle, which is Hell so yeah. much more interesting than kind of like your 500 word feature on the big masthead or whatever. Like I was one of the co-founders of Mess and Noise and yeah. that was solely based on that kind of thing. Like just everyone just talking shit. And as you say, Mikey, that Petri dish of of what was actually happening in the scene and in cities and what bands were doing you know that spawns all this other kind of goodwill and community that that you don't get from you know i guess what do we have at the moment like things like nme and the guardian and um the your pitchforks and stereo gums and all that kind of stuff but i i think what people forget as well because writers get ragged on for you know writing about <laughs> music essentially a, lo- mm. a lot of the time or, or trying to criticize it but often that is kind of how history is written, right? If someone comes out of the gates, like, uh, you know, for better or worse, championing your record or just steamrolling it or whatever, then that kind of sets a narrative that has really long-lasting reverberations. And sometimes that can just be started by some writers. So th- there is like a, a duty of care to foster people that can do it it's much more potent when someone else is telling you that you're good and telling the world about you like good morning you could say this barnyard album 
recorded with Thomas Schick at the loft. It's fucking sick. And we'll be going, okay, cool, man. I'll check it out. But then you've got 10 other people, including writers, yeah. talking about it. You're like, okay, this is something. Like when Paul Dempsey described um, the Peep Tempels album, Tales, as something he listened to and he couldn't get the, the stink off. I was like, I have to listen to this. I hate the name of the Peep Tempel. But I started listening. I listened to it. And I love the record, <laughs> and I started championing that band. You know, Methyl Ethyl, and now with you guys with Good Morning, I want to champion your band. So I, I actually disagree politely with my friend Kate Hennessy about we shouldn't be in the business of supporting artists because I I think if you if you're critical and you're if you're giving some very honest reviews, which I've I've given in the past, you have as well, Marcus, and can be very sort of negative for want of a better word. Then when you do support an artist and when you really are you know talking about how great they are, it means more. You know, because you're not—it's not just sort of advertorial. It's like, no, that was shit. This is really fucking good. Come this way and listen to it. You know. Do you guys see um, Pitchfork reevaluating their scores? Like mm. <laughs> in the past, that shit was so funny, oh. man. Like, tell me more. Like, oh, I, I missed no, it. Miss actually, it was it was cool to like Prince now. So like, you know, let's make this this six point five or seven point two. It was really funny. That's some horrible. But I think yeah. like, yeah. that kind tail. of like time. Just like own your mistakes. Yeah, own it. You know, <laughs> like. <laughs> Yeah, and also <laughs> just the, the idea that you can like objectively go like ten years later or whatever. It's like, oh no, we've we've thought about it, and it's actually point mm, three six. Get your heads out of your ass. Less good than it. Yeah, than it was. That was imagine that guy waking up one morning and you like Foxy J. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to your boyfriend Shard. Uh, Shard's had brutal. two of the feature reviews in Pitchfork this week, so he's getting some getting some really good spots there. So well done, D'Souza. Yeah, he's doing good for himself. Love that boy. Are you a voracious reader of, of music criticism? Because you seem like you got this sort of whirring intellect going on under, underneath, and I, I bet you've got lots of thoughts about it. Uh, yeah, I read a lot. I, I probably read too much sometimes. Like, that's kind of how I discovered music really, or like, you know, kind of got really deep down the rabbit hole was by reading. So I was like reading, reading people's books and reading, you know, a lot of like articles where people would talk about music they like and that sort of stuff. So I've always tried to keep on top of stuff by reading it as much as I can. Like I said, I think it's something that will be, will, will, will stick around. It's just going to, it's just going to change. And I mean, like when we kind of going back to when we started, like I remember being super bummed because I can't even remember which, which street press it was, but it was pretty early on and we got an email and they were like, Oh, like we'd love to write about you for like uh, our street press magazine. We're like, Oh sick. Like that's amazing. We're finally going to be in it. And they're like, okay, so it'll be our $500 for like, like, wait, that's a thing. Like you have to pay for it. Like it kind of just sort of blew our mind and that that sort of existed and it still does. And we like happy to say I've never paid anyone Mm. to write about us, but I think like there's, yeah, the, 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 the culture is just shifting. And I think there will be, there will still be criticism and there will still be places to read, but I think it's just, it's just Mm. moving Um, and it's yet to find its Mm. feet. Everything comes back. I mean, I bless enemy because enemy have come out of, in the shitness of last year, the commissioning really good writers and myself to write 1200 word profiles, two and a half thousand word cover stories. Like these are proper. And if you could see Mm. my editor, Karen Gui, she puts the blowtorch on every line. Like if you could have seen what <laughs> I got back last time, like, whew. yeah, and it's great. It's a great process, and so I think, uh, yeah, just just to sort of state that out loud, like there is actually some really good stuff going on, and it's happening in Australia too. But we do want a bit more of that sort of that 
personality coming through and the real gonzo stuff, which that's what that's what you, you absolutely love reading. And obviously, it's lacking at the moment because we ha- don't have any live gigs. So once live music comes back and then there's more money to you yeah. know for, for for people to sort of spend on um, promoting live gigs and all that kind of stuff, everything will kind of kick back into gear. But um, let's all just stick it out, my friends. Tell if there's something we should be covering on the show, hit us up. We're all on Twitter. Uh, hit us up on the hit different Facebook page as well. In just a moment, we're going to go into Liam Parsons' life and ask him. We're going to put him on on the couch and be his therapist. So let's do that. Here's a bit of music. Liam Parsons, one half of Good Morning, along with Stephen Blair, your bosom buddy since 2013. I believe you guys checks notes. You split the cost of a Foxtex four-track tape machine. Take us back, if you can, to that era where everything was possible. <laughs> back to the beginning. Yeah, well, I mean, even, like, I think we we met in 2010, 2010 or 20, like, we went to high awesome. school together. Um, so we were, we've been making music together in various capacities for, like, 10, 11 years mm-hmm. at this point. I guess, like, we have a fairly insular crew of friends that are all kind of like old friends and we've all played in a billion different bands together that are someone's solo project or side project or whatever it is it's not even a solo project it's just like their their current project and good morning was just kind of one of them that has just sort of stuck around (laughs) i guess (laughs) but why did stefan seem good we just liked the same shit really like i think you know when we met we 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 both quickly realized that we sort of had the same I mean, obviously, have the same taste. Like that's how a lot of our friendships are built, especially at that age. They're built on, you know, shared appreciation of music, really. But I think that Stefan and I had like a pretty similar ear and sort of similar temperament and I guess ability. And we were kind of interested in writing in the same way, and we have similar voices, I guess. So it was kind of we got kind of into like singing together and like harmonies. Twenty ten, that was sort of like the the peak of like every single indie band has just like, you know, like Animal Collective and Grizzly Bear and like Dirty Projectors. And it was just like a billion part harmonies and shit. So we were like, obviously really into that. <laughs> I think it just sort of escalated from there. Like would just share each other, like send demos to one another all the time. And eventually we kind of just started putting them together and making them sort of just exclusively for one another, I guess, like not releasing them. Eventually it just kind of seemed like a stupid idea to not make a record, you know, and why just keep it just the two of you? I think kind of for that reason, like we still have other, you know, we still have other other outlets and, you know, we play in other bands and we play play with other people and still with, with our friends. Like, you know, I'm happy to just play drums in someone else's band kind of thing. This project always just seemed like it was just for the two of us, you know, like we have like a pretty similar outlook just made sense for it to just be us two and we obviously we've worked with like a live band on a couple records and i'm sure it'll it'll change again in the future we've sort of been through a lot of stuff together at this point that it would be yeah it would be uh weird to to change it up <laughs> so the shawcross ep comes out back then 2014 i believe and then I checked in and uh, tyler the creator trolling Bandcamp, finds it puts it on his socials then you guys just have this kind of excitement and buzz around you, which really hasn't abated. Yeah, that was really weird. We just got like a a Facebook message one day from this like private account, just being like, <laughs> "Do you guys?" It was like, "Do you guys have a Twitter?" It was like Tyler, like someone it was like fake name kind of thing, but Tyler something. 
And we're like, uh, no, we don't have a Twitter. He's like, you should start a Twitter. And we're like, all right. And we were bored. So we just started a Twitter at this random guy's request. And then, like, our first follower was Tyler, the creator or something. And we were just like, <laughs> oh, okay. Like, so I guess that was Tyler, the creator. Good start. It was really bizarre. Yeah, he was just trolling. No wonder, trolling you've, quit, no wonder you've quit drinking to get better at Twitter. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I think he. I think he's since unfollowed in, you know, <laughs> which is fair. We have uh, we have questionable content, so <laughs> unreal. And that was the song "Warned You," which has become the gift that keeps on giving. Mm. And tell us a little bit about because I know we're speaking about Lorraine from our God friend Lorraine McKenna, incredible human, and someone who just has this great maternal instinct. She's also having a second child in two years, quite shortly. Yeah, hi, Lorraine. Amazing. She's been your kind of guardian angel in the last few years. When she went up to you uh, at the tote one night and sort of said, "Hey guys, you got heaps of streams. This is five years ago now. You're in the millions of streams." And she should have checked in and said, you know, you guys seeing any money from this? And your reply apparently was no. She whipped out her phone, did some calculations to show you how much money your music, the music you created, put out to the world um, should have been earning you. What happened next, bud? It's pretty, like, complicated process. I probably can't get too much into just because we have some interesting libel laws in this country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But, uh... We can dance around We them. can dance around it. I think, like, honestly, long story short, it's a pretty pretty un like a pretty common story really that a lot of young artists kind of get themselves into situations where they don't they don't necessarily know what their what their music is like owed I guess or like what it what it's what it's doing mm-hmm. on the sort of back end I think we just assumed that there was no money in streaming because they're sort of I mean for a lot of people there is no money in streaming and I don't think we kind of realized how algorithmically blessed we'd been like at that point, you know, Mm. to be kind of like one of the sort of lucky few, like sort of emerging young artists that actually kind of does get money from streaming. We just realized that we weren't seeing any of it. So yeah, it just kind of started a, 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 you know, a long drawn out process that has been like several years of just kind of us making sure that we own all of our stuff and getting it kind of all secured and back to us. Um, we were lucky mm. to have never like signed anything away. It was just kind of, you know, I think once you sort of dig into it, there's actually so many different weird revenue streams that your music kind of feeds into around the world. Like, you know, obviously we have APRA here, but like what that is in like every other country in the world, you know, and like, <laughs> it's like, are you the, are you the first person to kind of get there or is like someone else got there and like, kind of like signed it, signed it for them first. And it was just kind of following all those, all those roads it was a pretty shitty, shitty process, but yeah, we got there in the end. It's also, it's a pretty, it's a big leap to go from putting something out and going, oh, it'd mm. be sick if this takes off and then some, and then it actually taking off and then not being prepared for it taking off, even though it was kind of exactly what you wanted. And that's it. That's a real quick learning process. And it's kind of like that, you know, the, the business side of the dream starting to yeah. happen. Like it, it sounds like, like that that can all be traced right to Tyler kind of putting it out mm. there, which you could never anticipate, and then expanding, you know, suddenly expanding the the avenues for what's possible and what's achievable. It's like fuck. I thought we were just putting yeah. a record out. Well, yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, it, truly, and I think this is kind of like at the core of our band. Like we don't really make music for anyone other than ourselves so i don't think for for the longest time we never even thought about like what it was doing anywhere else 
and be like, oh, this has got a few plays. Like, huh, oh, that's cool. Like, blah, blah, blah. And just like move on. <laughs> and then, yeah. Yeah. Like you said, it's just um, realizing that if you kind of wanted to make money, which is sometimes like, you know, frowned upon weirdly enough, like that you have to kind of become a business person, which is pretty strange. Like considering we probably, our goal is really yeah. to like do music so we don't have to have a job, you know, like, so kind of to, yeah. to realize yeah. that you, yeah, yeah, there is like a lot of, a lot of random shit in the background that you have to do housekeeping on is, um, is a weird one, but mm. yeah. And obviously it was, it was shit that like, we all, we all got told, like, you know, you hear things like, how do I put this? Um, you know, like parents would be like, oh, like the music industry is like pretty bad. Like you got to watch out and be like, okay, dad, like, you know, what I'm, I'm like, <laughs> you know, you're just like, oh, that's never going to happen to me. And then it's like, oh shit, that happened to me. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty weird. And it's just kind of been like this sort of constant thing. Like I, me and Stefan are pretty used to it at this point. We kind of take it for granted that like, we'll just keep doing our, our shit and keep making music because we like it. We, we love, we love to make records and we love to tour there's enough to compartmentalize at the moment, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, I know. But for the most part, like, I'm, I'm, I'm really proud that, like, we've kind of managed to keep it together, really, because straight up, it's been a pretty weird few years, like, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> the special thing has happened. Uh, you has a friend saying, "You're going to get TikTok. You're going to get TikTok. You have been TikTok. The gift that keeps on giving is this song, <laughs> Warned You." which a slowed down eight second version of it is now soundtracking uh, teenagers lockdown on Wii and sort of this angsty kind of, mm. I just got dumped or all this kind of stuff. It's gone bonkers. And now it's up to something like 54 million streams. Overall, I think you guys have got over 130 million streams. I mean, we live in an age of streaming across your catalog, which is just extraordinary. Do you sort of feel like you're almost in the Truman show when you're waking up and this like, <laughs> like where did I accrue all this good karma? Like, how is this, how is this happening? I think we've kind of felt like that for a while. Like this is, we have this kind of weird, like, even though we've been through some like weird shitty experiences, we've always like had a lot of good luck at the same time. Like, you know, like even like the Tyler thing or like we got sampled on like a record, like on an ASAP Rocky, ASAP Rocky. Radio, like record Ooh. and like just random, like random shit like that just keeps happening or like, you know, kind of end up on tour somewhere or like, you know, just like nice, nice things happen. And it's just like a weird constant with our band for some reason. This probably sounds like, I don't know, <laughs> a bit weird, but like, if I'm going to, if I would take a stab at it, it feels like that what you guys do feels very personal and off the cuff and intimate. And even from the way you record to your lyrics and, and songwriting and maybe the brevity of songs as well. Like there's a, there's a sense of kind of like passing ideas and you're latching onto them. Like we were talking about with Matthew Newton. It's just like a thing that's bubbling away, chuck it in. And then, you know, then it's out of there for a little while and it, it becomes a song or whatever. Not heaps of people can recognize that. I feel like in the, the music landscape over the past few years, especially as this bombardment of like streaming and TikTok and all that kind of stuff. So when something pops up that is like, Oh, that sounds like real people, and kind of you know individual <laughs> thoughts that it really sticks out so i wonder if some of that success is just because you've kind of just done what you've always done with and it, and, it, and it's real to you and then people you know that that becomes novel to people in a in a weird way in the kind of landscape as we know it right now i think even the fact that we're like putting out our six like six record and we're like been around for for years and we're still doing it. I think a lot of that comes down to we are pretty 
insular, I guess. Like, even though I was saying, like, I do read a lot about modern music and, you know, try and keep abreast of things, like, the world of the band is pretty just the two of us, really. Like, we didn't have we didn't have management for years. Like, yeah. we didn't, we sort of tried to do everything ourselves for, like, as long as we could, you know, like, or, you know, maybe not everything, but, you know, as much as we could ourselves. And so I think, like, that's actually been a real blessing for us is that we've kind of stayed stayed in our own little bubble which has been really handy I think <laughs> you know and we've said we've said no to lots of things and we've like tried to like stay stand our ground and like sort of it's pretty it's a pretty weird industry you can sort of quickly end up doing shit that you're not comfortable with and like ending down weird rabbit holes and I think we've like tried to avoid it for as much as possible I think that's like probably owed a lot to us being able to kind of yeah, uh, stay true to ourselves. You know, <laughs> like it's a that's fucking beautiful, buddy. That's fucking beautiful. I know it does sound wanky, but that insularity is is exactly what I mean. It's like because what it means is that if people want a part of the Good Morning World or sound, like yeah, you guys have familiar touchstones, but there's also you know there's like a lens or an angle that is true to you guys and so if people want to participate yeah. in that then they have to come to you which is like honestly something that i've i've always liked about other other artists you know when they do kind of have that totally. thing that it seems very like specific to them and not saying that we're like re- you know doing like making completely original music that has no precedence you know obviously we like like you know there's a lot of history that we're basing our music off and whatnot but i've definitely you can always kind of tell when like you know an artist is like doing something for themselves or if they're doing it for for the bottom line or for for cloud or for trends and stuff and i think yeah it's just sort of something i've always admired Mm. it's funny even having spoken to all day the rapper he said in his first release he's like i just tried to make a triple j song i tried to have a triple j sound Mm. and i realized that was and he did, he got a Triple J and then he's like, actually, I don't want to do that at all. And now he's been lucky enough to sort of, you know, go his own way and people sort of have come along the ride with him and now he's making indie yeah. <laughs> sort of like yeah. lo-fi sort of indie kind of cool shit. You used the Swarmatron on the Barnyard record, which was sort of lying around this incredible studio, the Loft Studio in the Wilco Studio in Chicago. Tom Schick was also sort of winding you guys up. Any song over two and a half minutes, he was saying another fucking Prague song. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what what for the viewers at home is the Swarmatron? It's kind of this uh, box the size of like an old, like a big shoe box or something. It sort of looks like a piece of like, uh, like, like World War II, like radio gear, you know, <laughs> like it would be in like an old war movie. It's just got all these weird knobs and stuff on it. And it's, I guess you'd call it a synth noise box it's just yeah we obviously didn't really we weren't like writing for it (laughs) we had some songs and we kind of got there and there was just all this amazing shit lying around really that was one of the things and i was like oh my god it's a swarmatron like i've always wanted to play with one of those and so tom was like all right play with it to make a link with what we were just talking about you've you've recorded the new record at the loft in chicago which is most famously wilco's Mm. giant and and where they record and all that sort of stuff but um that I found this, someone was writing about um, Barnyard, oh, sorry, Country, and they wrote they wrote of you guys, they're challenging us to love them as they change a bit, recording with an outside engineer and releasing their new LP on a notable label, yeah. which cracks me up that having a recording engineer <laughs> and releasing a record on a label is, is, you, is you guys know, challenging right? your audience. Well, I mean, like... Sh- and, it, and then it says... But despite the upscale trapping. <laughs> yeah. 
that again, have, having an engineer and a label is somehow upscale trapping. Country country tells us they're still the lo-fi singer-songwriters and guitarists that can tap into themselves in a way that helps us tap into ourselves. Who it's a very that? sweet sentiment, but <laughs> I can't remember, to be honest. Uh, Come on, team. <laughs> no, it wasn't me. Well, I'm going to read out part of my own review. <laughs> no. But, yeah, even though it's kind of absurd to suggest, but was there a feeling with you guys having been so hands-on and lo-fi for a worse word that, going to an actual recording studio and using kind of like a, a great engineer and putting it out on a label, po- polyvinyl, was going to like alienate fans or, or change what it is that you do somehow? Nah, I mean, I mean, like I said, we really just do it for ourselves. So I think like we try and like we're always kind of surprised when it sort of turns out that we do have fans, you know, like tangible people that are kind of interested in it. So I think at this point, like, we've put out so much music that sounds fucking terrible. Like, really, just, like, awfully, awfully recorded and produced records that if somehow people are, like, still kind of on board, then, like, they're probably not going to mind a record that sounds good. You know, like, I think, <laughs> like, if anything, yeah, it was sort of like a little treat, you know? Like, thanks for sticking to this. But yeah, like we just we just wanted to like I think location is like always a big part of when we make a record. Like we we kind of always write like pretty much nonstop. So there's always like a bank of songs kind of ready to go at any given time. And so kind of when it's time to like make a record, it's just about how like where we want to do it. So I think I can really pinpoint like every record to a specific location and specific time. And this one, the idea of it was that we wanted to use a, a real studio. Like, that was it. And we didn't, like, specifically want the loft or anything. Like, we were just like, okay, any studio. Like, we're going to be on tour. We're going to be on tour later in the year. Like, let's, like, think of a studio we liked. So we really liked this place, Seahorse Sound, where, like, Kate LeBon works. I think we were just, like, on the tram one day and stuff. And was like, we should try and get the loft. And I was like, oh, that's fucking stupid. Like, why not? Like, let's try that. <laughs> like, and so we asked Lorraine and like Lorraine knows Jen Cloer who'd worked there in the past. And she sort of kindly asked if um, she could get a phone number and sort of one thing led to another. And they happened to be on tour. Like when we, when we were going to be there. So the place was free and Tom was going to be working and it just all lined up. Yeah. We love Wilco, but we also love a lot of, the other records that have been made there like over the past few years in particular, like it's just got a kind of distinct sound for a studio that we like. And then when we got there, I think we kind of realized that it wasn't, it's actually not a very like studio studio, you know, like it's really set up like kind of like home recording. Like it's all very lived in. It's very like kind of how we would make a record at home, but with really nice gear, like everything's just lying around the place and kind of, ready to pick up and just go like it's the least sterile environment ever so it didn't feel like too much of a leap really it's kind of famous for having like a billion different instruments to choose from was that distracting um kind of it was a little overwhelming at first for sure you know when we got there we were a bit like what the fuck is like you know how are we gonna do this (laughs) like are we gonna like even make a dent in all this and um i think we were saying to you mikey when we did that interview that like Tom was really encouraging. He kind of just immediately was like, all right, well, let's get to work. Like didn't really give us time to be like overwhelmed. It was just sort of got us started. And from then it was just, yeah, that's it. Sink or swim. I'm startled by how assured and just how everything, everything about this record is just like, like even the fact that the sound you got on the, 
the the first track, Too Young to Quit, I think I describe your voice as like rising up like an aloof cobra. <laughs> uh, you end the record with Country, the single, which is a real cool idea that I think you guys had of to start, to end with the record with a single, spit it out, Carl, and then do the opposite song at the start. Tell us a bit about sort of, yeah, structuring it like that. Wish I could remember the specific thing that we were, that I'd been listening to that did that, that was some, some album that had the single at the end. And I was like, that's fucking cool. Like backload the record, you know, <laughs> like it kind of put it, put it at the end. And I think it was like, it's very good morning to do it as well. <laughs> yeah. Cool. It just like, yeah, usually we don't really think about singles, but I think like that, like quite clearly sort of felt like a capital S like single type song, you mm. know, like it was just sort of like almost like comically singly. So we're like, oh, we'll mm. put that at the end and then put the... Well, it's almost like a... It's almost anthemic, isn't it? Like, in a, in a funny it way. It is. I think, like, yeah, guys. that song's pretty old. I'd written it in my bedroom, like, a few years ago. And we'd made some albums since since I wrote it. But that was almost kind of part of the thing about going to the studio is, like, wanting to be able to kind of make some bigger shit that we knew we couldn't do ourselves. Probably be willing to try now that we sort of have our own studio space and a bit better equipment. But... We didn't really want to do it on our own. Like it needed to sound kind of like, like a bit bigger. It's so great. One of my fave tracks. Thank you. That's really nice. Straight up. It's a, it's a full new order worship, which is something I was told a few days ago. Now, <laughs> if you stick around, my friends, it's time for the bonus episode with our guest, Liam Parsons. Well, he'll be talking about things like new order, people that have influenced him and music that hit different over the course of his life. If you're a subscriber, it'll be there in your podcast feed already. You might've seen it. Get it free this Thursday. Support it different. Another mushroom podcast you can't covering Australian music by becoming a, a subscriber. Check out the show notes for more information. You can get early access, ad-free episodes, and anything else we can send. I never called you a cunt. Most importantly, you'll be contributing to the original local music journalisms. Thanks to co-host Marcus Teague and our erudite guest, Liam Parsons. Stick around, because the bonus episode starts now. Now. 